And will you take your Bibles this morning and open them to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin reading at verse number 20 and go through 25. This is a passage on prayer and faith that is about much more than just prayer and faith. So follow along with me as I read beginning Mark 11, verse number 20. And they passed by in the morning... As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you, Your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you add your blessing to the reading of your word. It is inspired, it is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient. Lord, my words are not even close to that. So I pray that by some miracle of divine grace, as you do every week, you stand here, take the words of this message, use them in a way that creates faith in the hearts of those who hear. For the glory of your Son, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, have you ever wondered... Why God did not answer a prayer that you prayed? First off, we should acknowledge that there are prayers that we've prayed that God has not answered, or at least has not answered yet. Have you ever wondered why? And then you turn to a verse like Mark eleven twenty four in our text this morning, where Jesus says, if... I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Seems pretty clear, yes? If you pray and believe without doubting, then God will answer your prayer. He will grant your request. At least that seems to be what Jesus is saying here. So why then do many of our prayers go unanswered? Prayers for the salvation of a loved one or prayers for a wayward child. Prayers for divine healing, healing for a broken marriage, struggling marriage, a thousand other things that we pray about and pray for. 
the answers never seem to come. No matter how much we believe, we believe 200%, the answer doesn't come. That's the dilemma that we face with this passage and the promise of Jesus in these verses that if we just believe without doubting, whatever we ask will be done. But you see, it's only a dilemma for us because we tend to separate these verses. We, we pull them out of their surrounding context. In other words, in the Bible, each verse follows a preceding verse and precedes a following verse. <laughs> That's what we mean by context. And all of these verses have to be read and interpreted in light of each other if we're to determine and rightly understand what they mean together. The Bible is a book that demands to be interpreted and read contextually with each verse explaining the other. But friends, the context of Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer in this passage is not personal prayer request. It is not personal prayer request. The context is His judgment on faithless Israel, signified by cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple. And once we start to see these verses, these promises, these glorious promises that many preachers today have turned into blank checks, if you believe, you'll, you'll get it. It's a name and claim it game today. But once we begin to see these verses within their context, we see that Jesus really isn't promising that if we just pray in faith, then our prayers will be granted. Instead, he's calling his disciples, he's calling them in the first century there and us today to a true and believing faith in God. Not the empty faith of external religious forms that the faith of Israel had become. You see? He's calling us to true faith. And this is a reminder of our own need to have this kind of true, authentic, genuine, believing faith today, lest we become like the barren fig tree and the corrupt temple, having confidence in our own works, in our own religious acts, instead of the power of, and person of the living God. And so I want us to look at these, this passage, these verses, by way of just two headings, two main points. And the first is that true faith is God-centered. True faith is God-centered. Verse 20 says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. So, most of you were here last week. I think maybe all of you were here. So you remember this. On the previous day, which was Monday of Passover week, Jesus stopped on his way to Jerusalem at a fig tree. He was hungry. He looked at the fig tree. It was full of leaves, but it had no figs. And he cursed it because it had the appearance of having figs. It led him to believe that there was fruit on that tree, but in reality it was barren. There was no fruit there. This signified the spiritual emptiness of Israel, their vain faith, their empty faith. It looked great, but it didn't bear fruit. And so now, after Jesus cursed this fig tree, on their way back to Jerusalem, they were staying in Bethany during the night, two miles away, on their way back to Jerusalem the next day, which would have been Tuesday of Passover week, Peter comes across the same tree. And he's surprised, he's shocked. He says, Rabbi, look. Teacher, look. (laughs) The tree is withered, Mark says, to its roots. Just like Jesus said in verse 14, No fruit would ever come from that tree again. And then Jesus sort of comes out of left field and says, Peter, have faith in God. And those four words, have faith in God, that's really the driving theme of this next section. But was Jesus teaching his disciples about faith and prayer just so they could work miracles like cursing the fig tree? Just so they could do what he did? So they could curse a fig tree? Friends, I don't think so at all. There is something deeper going on here than just faith to work miracles. Remember, the overall context, this entire passage here, is judgment against faithless Israel. And now he's telling his disciples to have faith in God. Let's read on. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I think the King James Version says, he shall have whatsoever he saith. I want to put your attention on two words. This mountain. This mountain. He didn't say these mountains or that mountain. He said this Mountain, whoever says to this mountain, a specific mountain, something that they were likely looking at. Now, remember the geography. You remember those little videos I've been sending you for the past month or whatever 
the geography of Mark, where they're coming from. I mentioned the geography in these messages. They are coming from Bethany, two miles east of Jerusalem, down the slope of the Mount of Olives. You can go today down the very same, and go to the Mount of Olives and see the same thing that they saw here today. Pretty close. I mean, you know, not exactly the same. Jerusalem has changed in 2,000 years. But you get the view. They're coming from Bethany down the Mount of Olives from east. And from that vantage point, the temple complex, which was built on what we call the Temple Mount. For that phrase before, the Temple Mount. Every Jew, every Israeli, every Arab knows what the Temple Mount is today. The temple was built, the temple complex was built on the Temple Mount, and it would have been clearly visible. And friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that the mountain that Jesus was talking about in verse 23 was not a hypothetical, you know, insurmountable need that we might have. The mountain that he was talking about was the Temple Mount and the temple itself. That's what I want to tell you. That's what I want to suggest to you. The prophets, Isaiah and Micah, both spoke of the mountain of the house of the Lord. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 2.2 says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Remember, Jesus said, this is a house of prayer for what? All nations. All nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Isaiah 56, verse 7, which Jesus quoted partially in verse 17. It said, the, the entire verse says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, this is the part that Jesus quoted, verse 17, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is all Isaiah. 700 and something years before Christ. Now Isaiah is clearly writing about the temple on the temple mount the holy hill of the Lord. But the temple was no longer fulfilling its role as a house of prayer and worship, was it? It had been commercialized by the greedy and corrupt religious leaders of the day, and Jesus had just turned over the tables in the temple as an image of what? His judgment upon their Corrupt and faithless faith. So that is the context 
in which Jesus issues this phrase when he says this word, the, the, this, this verse here. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Friends, Jesus was about to do just that. He was about to throw that mountain of faithless and barren religion typified by Israel's temple worship. He was going to throw it straight into the sea. Which, by the way, the Dead Sea would have been visible from this slope on the Mount of Olives. Still visible today, in fact, on a clear day. Even with the sea levels, the Dead Sea level is, is decreasing every year. But How's that for an illustration? Whoever says to this mountain, this temple, all that you know is Israel's religion, and believes in his heart without doubting, says be thrown into the sea, it shall be done for him. You see, Jesus and his death would render Everything going on. Folks, this this passage is really, in some degree, about the new covenant. Because he's about to render everything going on in the temple obsolete. The old is past. The new is come. The old is going into the sea. In AD 70, the temple itself would be flattened by the Romans when they put down the, the Jewish revolt. Burned to the ground, the temple would be. And that once sacred place that had become an image of barren religion, empty faith. Jesus called it the fig tree that would never bear fruit again, and the mountain that would be thrown into the sea. So he's not talking about whatever personal mountain is facing you, whatever big thing that you need God to do in your life. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the mountain of empty faith. That's why Jesus says here, have faith in God. Not so you can make fig trees wither or so that you can literally throw mountains into the sea but so that your faith is centered on the power of the living God to throw down those obstacles to fruitfulness and true worship, which is what the temple had become. You remember his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. She said, you know, Samaritans, we worship on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. And what did he tell that lady? The hour is coming. When you will not worship God on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, which was not descriptive of the faith of Israel at this time. Their religious forms had become an obstacle, had become a mountain. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, friend, what, what obstacles to true and living faith are there in our lives? And do we believe in the power of God to overcome them? 
Maybe there's a sin pattern that's keeping you from bearing fruit. Something in your life that you, Hebrews calls it a besetting sin. Or maybe it's a, maybe it's a spiritual dullness. Or maybe you're like the pilgrims that you traveled to Israel, to, to Jerusalem for Passover and buying and selling in the temple and they're trusting in their religious acts, their sacrifices, their, their, their forms of worship. Maybe it's your church attendance. Maybe it's your religious upbringing. Your parents were saved. Your grandparents were saved. Your dad was a preacher. Friends, we all have mountains in our hearts that we need God to throw into the sea. But do we believe that God can do it? Secondly, in this passage, we see that true faith is evidenced by believing prayer. Okay? True faith is evidenced by believing prayer. Verse 23 says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That sounds really good, doesn't it? So here's the application to prayer. Jesus is talking to who? His disciples, Peter, James, John, Matthew, all, all, all of them. These men would soon be in the fight of their lives in preaching the gospel. And just like Jesus, these men, these disciples would be opposed by an empty and faithless Judaism. And they needed to believe. They needed to know and believe beyond any doubt that God is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. We see this in the the history of the early church in Acts chapter 4. After healing, or after the healing of a crippled man at the temple, the Sadducees, which were members of the Sanhedrin here, the Sadducees had Peter and John arrested and they forbade them from ever preaching in the name of Jesus again. They said, do not talk about this man. And so Acts 4.23 picks up and it says, When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. What did they do? They went to prayer. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, by the way, he's quoting Psalm 2 here, I think, who said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city, what city? Jerusalem. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, king of the Jews, right? Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is all their prayer. Verse 29 of Acts 4, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here here it is, verse 31. And when they had prayed, what's the theme of this this passage here in Mark? 11 11 verses uh, 20 to 25. Prayer and faith. Who's he talking to? His disciples. Well, here are his disciples, persecuted by the same people that, that killed Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Friends, that is what true faith in God looks like. Jesus said, have faith in God. You want to see a picture of it? Turn to Acts 4. Look at how the disciples responded when the religious establishment crashed down upon them, they went to prayer. They remembered that Jesus said, whatever you ask, what did they ask for? They asked for boldness. What did God give them? Boldness. Faith in God is a praying faith. Do you say you have faith in God? Do you pray? Faith in God is a believing faith. Do you have faith in God? Do you believe? This is the promise of Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And so we, we really have to address this phrase, though. We've got to talk about whatever you ask, right? Because I know when perhaps my children or maybe your children or somebody else's children hear that, they, they may think of, uh, you know, my children, one of my kids right now is, uh, they're after me for, you know, a, 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 an iPhone or something for Christmas. They want this or they want that. Whatever you ask, that's what Jesus said, Right? Is this a blank check that you can just cash anytime you need something from God? You need money in the bank? Well, just ask for it. If you believe hard enough, He'll get it for you. You need healing in your body? If you believe hard, He'll do it. You need somebody saved? If you believe hard, He'll do it. Is it a blank check? Is it a name it and claim it kind of thing? No. Why? Because this verse exists in a context. You see, most Jews believed 
that prayers offered in the temple were extraordinarily effective. That God would hear the prayers that were offered in the temple. Many of their extra-biblical and their apocryphal writings reflect that belief. I want to read to you from one of their apocryphal writings. This is uh, from 3 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 10. This is a Jewish writing in the first century. This is not the Word of God, but it reflects this idea that I'm trying to communicate. They said, You, Lord, promised out of love for the people of Israel that if we fall away from you and become afflicted and then come to this house and pray, you would hear our prayer. You see that? They believed that if they went to the temple to pray, that God would be more inclined to hear their prayer. But what had happened to the temple? This house of prayer had become corrupted, hadn't it? It had been turned into a den of robbers, Jesus said. And so now he is essentially saying to his disciples, Listen, guys, the effectiveness of your prayers has nothing to do with the temple, but everything to do with your faith. And the whatever you ask in prayer from verse 24 is not a blank check. But it is the assurance that God hears the prayers of His people who call on Him in true believing faith. Not like the faith of so many of those who were going into the temple, offering their prayer confident in their sacrifices. No. The temple has nothing to do with the effectiveness of your prayers, He's saying. But there is something that does. And so we have verse 25. It's not the temple that will hinder your prayers. But in verse 25, it gives us something that will. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone... that's hard, that's hard to swallow right there. Because most of us in here this morning, we have something against somebody. Even if it's buried way in our past. There's somebody we won't speak to anymore. Somebody we don't like to think about anymore. Whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, verse 26, neither will your Father, who is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now friends, this is not some random saying that Jesus sort of like tags on to the end of this teaching on prayer. And see, this is what happens when we rip these verses out of context. We don't understand them. It seems like weird. This is how is this going from a fig tree to a cursed, a cursed fig tree to a cleansed temple, and now we're talking about forgiveness and prayer. This is a context, not a random saying. Any prayer uttered in the temple 
from a faithless and corrupt heart fell on the deaf ears of God. We don't like to hear that, do we? That there's a prayer that God will not hear. Friends, there are prayers that He will not hear. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Incidentally, all the passages I've given you this morning that I've quoted from have been from Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins, he says, have separated us. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Friends, one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is to think that God will hear any prayer that we pray. He will not hear the prayer of a sinful, willfully sinful heart. He won't do it. He can't. He cannot hear those prayers. Now the corrupt temple will not prevent your prayers from being ineffective, from being heard, but a corrupt heart will. A corrupt heart of unforgiveness will. And I wonder, friends, how many of us in here today gather here Sunday after Sunday and pray in this house of prayer with unforgiveness in our hearts towards someone else? And our prayers fall on the deaf ears of God who will not hear the prayer of an unforgiving soul. Perhaps it's unforgiveness towards someone who hurt you in the past. Maybe it's towards your spouse. Maybe it's towards your parents. Maybe it's towards your children a friend who bullied you, a co-worker who wronged you. Whoever it is, unforgiveness will hinder your prayers. And it doesn't matter what you give to the church offering, how much you come to church, or what good works you do, or how righteous you think you are, or how many pro-life marches you go to. If you hold unforgiveness in your heart, God has deaf ears for you. Why? Why will not God hear our prayers? Because we are all sinners who stand equally condemned before a holy God. And we have no right to withhold forgiveness from another because God hasn't withheld forgiveness from us, has He? He gave us the life of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a ransom, as a full payment for the unpayable sin debt that we owed Him. And whatever sin debt, whatever trespasses, whatever debt someone else owes against us pales in comparison to that. So friends, whoever it is this morning for you, What is the mountain that's in your heart? If that mountain is unforgiveness, 
forgive them and let it go. Have faith in God to throw that mountain, that obstacle to your growth, that obstacle to your fruitfulness. Have faith in the power of God to throw that into the sea. Or will your prayers be like the prayers of so many in Israel who were going to the temple for Passover? Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end. What does that tell us? That he had to do it twice. That we don't learn. John records the early cleansing, and the synoptic writers record the, the later cleansing. So if we fall back into our same sin patterns. And so will our prayers be like their prayers, the faithless Israel, who were confident in their sacrifices? They were spending money. They were willing to, to be ripped off by the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin to get their sacrifices done, but they had no true faith in God. Will your prayers be like those offered in the temple, that mountain of empty and corrupt religion that Jesus was about to throw into the sea, on, his, on the day of his crucifixion, when he cried out, it is finished, the veil in the Holy of Holies, the thing was torn in two. A new way had come. The mountain of empty and faithless religion was thrown into the sea with the redemptive death of Christ on the cross. Will your prayers fall on the deaf ears of God? Oh, friends, I pray not. Friends, I pray that my prayers do not fall on the deaf ears of God. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith and do it today. Let's pray.